behavior is uncertain. We do know, however, that God, both God and man, identifies as man as being inwardly and outwardly upright. We know that he had the profoundest respect for God. He treated his fellow men with all fairness, he cherished his family, and he had a thorough aversion to all evil. His wife, whom we hear of only briefly in chapter 1, bore him seven sons and three daughters. He was healthy, wealthy, and wise. His enormous herds of sheep and camels grazed in the Arabian grassland. His oxen served to pull the cows on the extensive land holdings, and his donkey would be used for the transportation of produce and equipment. And to run such a mixed enterprise of cattle raising and uh, cattle raising and agriculture would have required numerous slaves or servants, and those too were part of his extensive holdings. He was known as the wealthiest of the inhabitants of the East. And now at the time of our text, his sons were already grown and independent, presumably married, living in their own homes, and in all likelihood, these homes would have been situated somewhere on the family farm, and given the enormous size of the estate, it is possible that their brothers lived at some considerable distance from each other and from their father, but they did work, we read, at maintaining family ties. We read that on, on festive occasions, their brothers came together to celebrate for a whole week. Their sisters were also invited to these family social gatherings. And then we read that after the week of feasting had run its course, they all came to the parental home, and a day was spent in bathing and washing in preparation for the solemn sacrifice of the next day. Early the next morning, like the ancient patriarchs before him, Job would act as priest for his entire family. He would offer a burnt offering in expiation for possible violations of the standards of piety committed perhaps under the influence of wine at the feasting of the previous week. Perhaps, perhaps, under the influence of drink, his children had sinned during their party, and so for every child, a sheep or a goat was put on the altar to compensate for the possible sins in the lives of his children. Job obviously loved his children. And he had the deepest respect for God. And so by his sacrifices, he sought to make everything right between God and his children. That now is the scene before us, given us in the picture of that home in us. But it is in particular Job that is featured in the opening verses of the chapter. And now as the narrative continues, the Holy Spirit introduces two more players, if you will. A meeting takes place between God and Satan concerning Job, the man from us. Our text speaks of these things this morning. I want to minister God's word to you using it as my theme, God's dialogue with Satan. God's dialogue with Satan. And from, the, from that dialogue, we want to learn that Satan is a real being. We will learn that Satan is accountable to God, and we will see that Satan is restricted by God. So God's dialogue with Satan, uh, Satan being a real being, and that Satan is accountable to God, and that Satan is restricted by God. Congregation, the text opens up with now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. 
we know that the sons of God in this context describe the, the holy angels. And, and instantly that presents us with an important question, which is just where is this incident taking place? I mean, just precisely where is it that God meets with the angels in the company of Satan? And as I read and studied in preparation for this sermon, I discovered that most scholars assume the setting to be in heaven. In fact, one scholar wrote, in this section, the scene and situation changes from earth to heaven. He says, a curtain is drawn aside, as it were, and we're allowed a glimpse into the very throne room of God where a great assembly or a great council is taking place, end quote. And that would seem logical, but can that be right? It would be my conviction that it cannot. It would be my conviction that Satan cannot commit to heaven. Uh, indeed, I acknowledge that everything beyond this earth is enshrouded in mystery, and I confess that we, have, we know nothing other than that which Scripture reveals to us about the, the great beyond, but, but it would be my conviction that any sin or evil cannot step across the threshold of the holy place we know as heaven. And so when I am asked just where does this dialogue between God and Satan take place, I would have to say, I don't know. That may not be a very satisfactory answer, but it's the best I can do, since I am convinced that this meeting between God and Satan does not take place in heaven. However, ultimately, it is not important that we know where Satan comes into the presence of God. It is more important to know why he is there, and that information is given us, and our text points us the way. We read, all the angels were gathered and Satan to appear before the Lord. And then we read, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro upon the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Follow with me for a moment. We can understand why the angels should be gathered in the presence of God. The Bible teaches us that angels are God's messengers engaged in his service. Hebrews 14 tells us clearly that all angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. In other words, in other words, angels are instruments used by God to serve God's children so that we are given to see here then, what we're given to see here is a beautiful picture of God's angels, if I may say this right, reporting for duty. I believe it legitimate to interpret this appearing of the angels before God is given given us to teach us that even though God is omniscient, periodically he summoned the angels into his presence for them to report on the errors and the duties they have carried out and to receive further instruction. And so, so that we know why the angels were there, but it is more difficult for us to understand why Satan should be present, except to say that we know that he too is God's servant. Oh, an unwilling servant, certainly, but a servant just the same. A servant who still has to give an account to God for his doings. And that's one of the greatest truths which is taught us from this book of the Bible. And we learn the truth of that principle already here in this opening dialogue which God initiates here in our text. The fact that Satan appears with the angels before the presence of God is again evidence that whatever Satan does in this world, whatever Satan does in this world can only be with God's permissive will. Continue to walk with me as I develop an important 
an extremely important mythical principle. God begins this dialogue with a question, where have you come from? And immediately we need to apply some hermeneutical principles. Hermeneutics is, sounds like an expensive word, but it means the science of interpreting scripture. And here we need to be careful how we interpret or how we approach the text. What I mean is this, we know that God is omniscient, meaning all-knowing. There is nothing that God doesn't know, and so when attempting to interpret a question of God, the question is, where have you come from? We need to remember that God's questions are never for the purpose of obtaining information, least of all from Satan, because God already knows everything. When God asks a question, his intent is not to ask something, but to teach something. And in this instance, the teaching concerns Satan's activity, and it comes out in his reply. I have come from roaming through the earth and going to and fro on it. And that corresponds precisely with what Peter tells about Satan when he writes that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Scripturally, then, that is Satan's main preoccupation. Satan's preoccupation is to prowl and to roam the earth like a restless lion seeking its prey in order to devour it. And that's something we need to remember. My dear people of God, the scriptures are quite emphatic that evil is not simply an abstract force or an indefinable influence or principle in the world. No, evil is personalized, personified in Satan. There is a real devil whose name is Satan. And the name Satan itself means adversary or one who opposes. And that's, and that's his whole objective. All of Satan's intentions are to oppose God. Satan is dedicated entirely to opposing God's truth and God's people. And we need to have it clearly in our minds that we're not dealing with in this Christian life with an abstract principle of evil, but with a real personality who plans and schemes and connives as he roams the earth and, and who has a definite strategy to hinder the work of God in his church and in his people. Satan is real, and Satan is a real threat. And Lord Jesus himself gives us a good example of this in his parable of the sower and the preacher, the preaching of God's word. Do you remember that story? The seed is the word of God, and those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes, and we read that he takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Luke chapter 8. And notice that there is no suggestion that that evil is some kind of an abstract principle. No. Our Lord tells us the parable to explain to us that Satan is a personal, intelligent being whose deliberate strategy is to hinder the advance of God's kingdom by preventing people from believing the word of the gospel. That's his function, his entire function, and we would be well served to know and to remember that. Jesus also emphasizes the personal existence of Satan by describing him as the prince of this world, John 11, as a liar and the father of lies, John 6. The temptations through which our Lord passed in the wilderness, Matthew 4, they were real because the tempter himself was real. He was no imaginary opponent, but he, but he was the prince of demons, as Matthew tells us in chapter 9. And Paul calls him 
the ruler of the kingdom of the air in his letter to the Ephesians, and as such, Satan has under his command an army, an army of demons engaged in a cosmic warfare with God's kingdom of truth and righteousness. My dear, precious people of God, Satan is real. His craft and cunning are great, and his intent is to destroy believers. We need to understand that. Satan is not interested in the world. The world belongs to him already. No, Satan's attention is addressed to those who want to serve the Lord. In other words, in other words, the object of Satan's hatred is you. Where have you come from? From roaming back and forth in the earth, checking to see who I can destroy. But pay close attention. A proper understanding here is crucial. Notice that it is now God who takes this dialogue a step further. He asks of Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is no one like him on the earth, he blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil? And once again, God's question is meant to teach us something about Satan's activity. My dear precious people of God, capture this with me, first of all. God's question here teaches us of Satan's special attention to believers. He had indeed considered Job. Satan knew all about Job, as was evident from his reply. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Have you blessed, you have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land? My dear people of God, Satan, Satan had taken careful note of Job. Satan knew Job personally. In other words, then Satan knows you and Satan knows me. He takes a personal interest in all of us who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan watches us very closely. He watches us and he notices every move we make. He examines every detail of our lives. He assesses our strengths. He makes careful note of our weaknesses. And then he devises the best form of attack to bring us crashing down morally and spiritually. Make no mistake about it. Satan has your number. And the moment you let down your guard, when the time is right, he will strike. Just as he did with Job. And we notice from our text that Satan is a cynic. He always misreads and twists everything. He lies because he is the father of lies. Does Job fear God for nothing? He says, if I was to paraphrase just a little bit, we would read it to say, the only reason Job doesn't curse you, God, is because of the things you have done for him and given to him. Take those things away, and Job will curse you to your face. That gives us a clue as to what Satan is all about. His ambition is to curse God. Many of you, as I said, Satan's craft and cunning is great. He has a, a whole storehouse full of strategies to bring us down. And we see one here in this discussion. One of Satan's many strategies in attacking God's people is to use the weapon of accusation. And in this instance, he accuses Job of serving God out of self-interest. Does Job fear God for nothing? In effect, he says to God, are you kidding, God? Are you kidding? 
Sure, it's true that Job is blameless and upright and shuns evil, but that's only because it pays him to live like that. If his God-fearing conduct serves to his advantage, he's acting out of self-interest, it's to his advantage to be pious, and that's why he serves you. It's got nothing to do with loving you, it's got nothing to do with acknowledging you as his creator, and you know you've guarded and protected him, you've put a hedge around him, so that his lifestyle is comfortable and easy, you have given him wealth and status and a happy family without any worries or problems, and that's why he serves you. Then Satan goes further and he challenges God on the basis of his accusation against Job. But stretch out your hand, God. Strike everything he has. And then he will surely curse you to your face. What an accusation. He is saying that Job is, Job is a hypocrite. Job's faith in God is no more than a facade. It's all a false front. And, and if he's exposed to the sharp edges of life, if his life were to become difficult, then his true self will come out. And then it will be seen that he is just as self-centered and self-serving as anyone else. My Google, our catechism speaks of being thankful in prosperity and remaining confident in adversity. But here Satan accuses Job of being thankful only in prosperity and suggests that he will fail miserably in adversity. Satan accuses Job, and he insists that Job's faith in God's mercy and goodness is real and genuine only when things are going well. My dear people, is that perhaps also so with us? Could it be that perhaps some of us do the same thing? What I mean is, when God puts a hedge around us, so to speak, so that our life is comfortable and undisturbed by problems or difficulties of any kind, then being faithful to our Christian convictions and praising God for his love and kindness is something that comes relatively easy, doesn't it? But what about when the way is hard? What about when sickness and bereavement enter your home? What about when each day seems to bring with it new worries and added tension? What about when a pandemic disturbs your life and your public worship? What about when the head seems to have been taken down, leaving the way open for Satan to attack you? Would your faith then still stand strong? Or would you become cynical and bitter and perhaps even resentful? That's what Satan accuses us of as God's people. Is it true? Is our life for God based to a large extent on self-interest? My dear congregation, sadly, there's more than a grain of truth to the accusation. There are uh, church members who, under the pressures of life, begin to show an entirely different attitude. When things don't go quite right, or when they are met with a great tragedy or a disappointment in life. The next thing we know is that they begin to grumble. They appear to become cold in their devotion. It's an important question, therefore. What happens? What happens to your faith? What happens to your faith and practice when that hedge around you is taken down? Satan challenges God directly with the words, but stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. He's saying, in effect, 
Let that head be taken down. And I will prove to you, God, that Job's love is only because of his material blessing. You have favored him since Satan, and therefore he serves you. We can understand, can we not? But for the sake of his truth, God, God cannot allow that accusation to go unmet. And he accepts the challenge. The Lord says to Satan, very well then, very well then, everything that he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, you want to lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. But now secondly, an extremely important principle needs to be understood and applied here. Remember with me that Satan has come before God to give an account of himself. Verse 7. It's important that we understand that. In other words, although Satan has tremendous power, he does not have ultimate authority. Even in the fact that he is reporting to God, we see that he is not autonomous. His power is limited. His power is delegated. He cannot do as he pleases. His malice is under check. Satan's power is not on par with God's power. There is no equality between God and the devil, or God and or good and evil. Calvin says in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, God holds the key. Remember, follow this with me. Temptations in life, they come as a result of Satan's malice. God tempts no man. But a trial, that's different. Trials cannot simply be attributed to Satan. They can be attributed to him, but not solely to him. Notice with me that it is God, notice with me that it is God who brings up the possibility of Job's trials to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? We need to pay close attention here, for it is so very, very important that we understand this. We have to deal with an almighty, majestic, and thrice holy God who is sovereign. In other words, the ultimate authority for this trial is God's, not Satan. When bad things happen to God's people, God did it. That's the disturbing message of our text. Satan had indeed taken notice of Job, but he hadn't thought about afflicting Job until God mentions it. The eternal frustration that Satan has to live with is that he can never accomplish what he desires. He is limited in his abilities. He is not omnipotent. He is a finite creature. What a tremendous comfort that has to be for you and for me. God sets boundaries around what Satan can and cannot do. Job can be tested. Satan can test him. Satan can tempt him. But God makes it clear that Job himself must remain unscathed. In other words, in other words, God sets the rules of engagement here. And yet, and yet, and yet, my dear precious saints, the disturbing thing for some of us in the realization that behind what happens here to Job, behind what happens here to Job, the loss of his family and his goods, Behind all of that lies the hand of God. That's the problem, isn't it? Well, it's not so much that Job suffered. We're used to that. We see examples of that every day. And it isn't the so-called problem of evil, either, or the resolving of the issue as to where this sin comes from. No. The problem here, we're very careful when I say this, but the problem here is God. Stating it like that is shocking, isn't it? 
How can God be a problem? But the issue we have to face in this and in subsequent chapter of this book is how can God allow this to happen? Who's stronger than that? It's not even a matter of God allowing it as though God was somehow passive in all of this. No, God actually instigates the trial. God puts the idea of afflicting Job in Satan's head. God initiated Job's trials. And even though it is God who sets the rules, the truth remains that Job's suffering is God's doing. That's the problem for so many struggling, ill-informed believers. Stating it that way reminds us again that the book of Job is primarily a book about God. And it is the issue that you will return to again and again as if you attempt to unfold this Old Testament book. The issue is not so much why do we suffer, but why does God make us to suffer? My dear friends, what in Amos chapter 3, verse 6, we read, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city, and shall the Lord not have done it? Shocking, isn't it? Allow me an illustration here. Ezra chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Those which have been carried away into Babylon returned again to Jerusalem and to Judah. You know the story. Follow with me. Taken as a whole, the story of the 800 years that God's people occupied Canaan, it is a woeful story. And towards the end, it becomes the most tragic national record ever written. In it, we see high calling and deep sinning. We see transcendent privilege and great abuse until deportation into exile was the only answer. God carved Israel into captivity as consequent of their abysmal failure in their sins. But that banishment cured Israel of idolatry. And a new chapter begins when in 536 B.C. the remnant, some 50,000 souls, returned to Judah. Try now with me to capture in the, the minds and the thoughts of especially the parents among those 50,000 people. When they were carried off into captivity 50 years earlier, they were just children. But now they were old. What strange thrill of emotion must have been theirs go back again, to be back in the homeland. What memories, what gratitude to God, but what discouragement and despondency when they returned and saw the silt and debris of their cities and the unkept entanglement of weeds where once had been fields of waving grain. Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple was destroyed. The Davidic throne was gone. What was there left? Oh, so very much was left. So very, very much was left. There was the teaching of the past. Through the discipline of deportation, they had, they had really learned, especially of God's faithfulness. Second, there was the promise for the future. Although the Davidic throne was no more, the Davidic line remained from which the Messiah would come. And third, there was the presence of the Lord among them. You know how that story speaks to us today. We go on year after year, living our lives in our own way, often maybe unconsciously pushing God out of our thoughts. We go on loving our idols, following our sins, choosing darkness rather than light, or else we go on in proud self-righteousness, ignoring any need of a Savior. Then something happens. Something happens which corresponds with that awful exile so long ago. 
some great tragedy disappoints or disappointment afflicts us. God leads us into captivity, so to speak. Our fair city is laid low. Our little kingdom comes crashing down. We thought it to be so strong, so safe, so lasting. But its walls are battered down. Its palaces destroyed. Its gates twisted in a fire. That which has meant so much to us is suddenly struck down and ruined. And we're dragged into an exile of grief and disillusionment, remorse and so Oh, our calamities may come to us in the form of sickness or, or a, a serious accident of financial ruin, crop, crop failure, bereavement, or in the form, even in the form of a restrictive pandemic. And oh, how pitiful our desperation. Why, God? Why, God? Why, God? Why, God? My dear precious, precious people of God gathered with me here this morning. Through the COVID-19 pandemic, God has recaptured our attention. I don't know God's complete purpose with that pandemic, but I can tell you this. Suddenly God had our attention, and then in our exile, if you will, in our dark night of the soul, we needed to once again begin to think of God. And we were brought to remember how we had neglected him in our prosperity and our affluence. The pandemic, at least in part, was given us in order to remind us how we had neglected him, dishonored him, wronged him during our time of freedom and prosperity. While sitting in our pews, wearing masks and remaining at a distance from one another, or as Job sitting in a pile of ashes, scratching at his sores, we, I hope, began to reflect upon how patient God had been with us, and we began to be troubled about our sin, and we began to sense that this entire calamity has come upon us, at least in part, because of our sin and our neglect. And if that happened to you, as individual believer or collective as a congregation, then despite the difficult circumstances, you will have begun to see that this painful pandemic interrupting our lives and worship was actually given us, hear me well, was actually given us as a great gift from God, because through that very painful way, we began to rediscover our need of God. We began to think again of our need of salvation from God, and, and like the returning exiles of long ago, through this difficult exile, we came back to look at our life through new eyes, eyes which were perhaps sadder and older, but now wiser. And then we found within ourselves a desire to serve God with renewed vigor and dedication. My dear precious saints of God, God drives us through the refiner's fire. And as Job will say in another place, I know that the Lord is testing me. And when he is done testing me, I will emerge as fine gold. In other words, when that painful exile or the trial has its desired effect, that we are done with our idols, we are done with our complacency, we're done with our lukewarmness, and he becomes our all, and at last we find the joy which is deeper than any other joy can be. <clears throat> Seen from that perspective, what a blessedness when the Lord causes us to suffer. Count it all joy, says Peter, when you're called to suffer. For in that suffering, the Lord determines the genuineness of your faith, 
is much more precious than gold that perishes. Many of precious people in God. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, you may be familiar with some of the wonderful reformed theologian. But he tells the story of a young couple in this congregation who at best lived in the outer fringes of the church. They hardly ever attended the worship services. They were not involved at all in the life of the church. And Jones was aware that this couple desperately hoped for a child. But for 15 years, God, this is a true story, God had withheld that blessing. For 15 years, God had kept her womb closed. And her barrenness was a constant burden for them to bear. And almost miraculously, she conceived and gives birth to a beautiful baby girl after 15 years of marriage. Four years of age, the child was killed by a drunk driver. Understandably, the couple was inconsolable, inconsolable, and they angrily stormed into Jones' study to make funeral arrangements. But they also demanded to know from him what kind of a heartless God Jones represented. And Jones tells us that he allowed them to vent their anger. And when they were finally quietly sobbing on the couch in his study, he said, now, he said, let me tell you a story. He said, there was once a farmer who raised sheep. And one day he was gazing out over his flock during lambing season. And he admired all of the animals in their young, enjoying the pasture. But then he noticed a dark, angry cloud on the horizon. And for their protection, he herded his flock into the barn for safekeeping until the threat of danger was past. However, one sheep, accompanied by her little lamb, refused to follow the flock. And try as he may, he could not convince the animal. Every time he got close, it would scamper around the little lamb and follow. And finally, he managed to grab the little lamb. He carried it in his bosom into the barn, and instantly, the mother sheep followed, looking for her precious little lamb. You see, St. James, God acts like that sometimes as well. Sometimes God takes a precious little lamb of ours into his heavenly barn in order to draw us back into the fold. If that happens here, he said to them, if that happens here, if the death of your child drives you back to the Lord, then her death has been the greatest blessing you could ever receive from them. And then give us the rest of the story. But people of God, to that end, God causes us to suffer. When God drives us through the refiner's fire, He does so in order to strengthen our faith and our resolve in the Christian life. Is it then not a great blessing when God visits us in calamity? Is it then not a great blessing when God disturbs our personal or communal nest? It is, if through the eyes of faith, we will see and receive it as such, but if we stubbornly allow that this comfort that God sends us to drive us even further from Him, or if we allow the root of bitterness to overcome us, God's efforts have been wasted upon you, and without repentance, God's efforts will be held against you. 
on the day of judgment. Come we all joy then, when we were called to suffer, for it is God who sends suffering with his objective being to drive him closer to his loving Father's heart. Amen. Would you turn with me to Psalm 130? Psalm 130 will sing all things that are. 